Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. My guests on this episode are Kurt Leedy and Kyle Coots, co-founders and managing directors at Miramar Equity Partners. Kurt and Kyle have an interesting vantage point in the search world, being backed by a family office with an agnostic time horizon, allowing them to invest in the widest set of opportunities in search and parallel spaces. Our episode focuses on a concept they developed they call the three ways to make money, those being classic LBO, M&A-driven strategies, and organic growth. We dive into characteristics of each along with a few examples from their portfolio. We also touch on how the intersection of two or more methods can create exponential outcomes. Finally, we discuss a few theses they find interesting in healthcare and software, and how they develop a thesis on an industry. Today's sponsor Q&A is with Oakborne Advisors, an independent retirement plan consulting firm that helps small companies design and implement great retirement plans for their teams. We're joined by Matt Reba to talk about the most common issues CEOs run into with retirement plans. What are some of the most common issues that small businesses run into with retirement plans? So I think there's a handful of common issues that 401k plan sponsors face, but I'll just talk about two of them today. The first one is the fiduciary risk that the owner of a company or the plan trustee assumes as they start offering a 401k plan to employees. I think that a lot of owners and plan sponsors aren't aware that they're assuming that fiduciary risk by offering the plan. And then it's a risk that they cannot unencumber themselves of. They can hire 401k consultants and other service providers to spread their risk around, but ultimately they're responsible to the employees to make sure that the 401k plan that they're offering is compliant, functions properly, and that it's in line with the competitive cost and services that are available in the industry. Another commonly overlooked issue for employers offering a 401k plan is simply taking advantage of the competition in the marketplace. What we see as consultants is that a lot of employers will set up a plan, and as long as that plan is functioning properly, the payroll is working, and people can get onto the website to view their accounts, they kind of just don't touch it again. The problem with that is that these 401k providers or the record keepers, that's the company that you see on the website when you go to access your account or on your, on your statement. The third-party administrators, that's the company who helps you with your annual testing or filing if you're 5,500. And the mutual fund providers or the investment service providers, that's the investment companies or the options available within the 401k, are all in a constant state of flux and competition with each other. And as the consumer, that competition is good for you. It's good for you in terms of pricing and additional services. So I think a lot of plan sponsors don't know that the competition on the side of the business is that fierce, and they aren't aware of how much has changed over the last three, five, 10 years in the 401k plan space, and they're not taking advantage of that opportunity. So that's another common unknown challenge that 401k sponsors encounter. So offering a 401k plan is table stakes for most employers today, and it's worth having an expert on your team to make sure that that benefit doesn't become an administrative burden. To learn more about Oakborne Advisors, check out their website at oakborne.com and get in touch to see how they can help your company's retirement solution. And now to the episode. Well, Kurt and Kyle, thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk through a whole bunch of different things from family office investing, roll-ups, software, three ways to make money, a whole bunch of things. One, one of the, the core concepts for the conversation is the, the, this concept you've outlined, the three methods to make money those are methods being classic LBO, M&A strategies, and then organic growth. I would love to kind of hear what parts from your background are informing those three, method, those three methods and that kind of mental framework. I'd love to hear where, where all of those ideas came from as parts of your background. Yeah, I guess I'll start, Alex. We started Miramar Equity Partners about four and a half or five years ago. And, uh, and we got to start with a sort of blank sheet of paper. I had come from a background of, we both started our careers at Bain & Company, Kyle and I both did, but uh, I then went to work for a middle market private equity fund called Ridgemont Equity Partners based in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'd been a sort of tech and telecom investor, very industry focused investor. Uh, Kyle can share his background in a moment. But when we started Miramar Equity Partners, we had, we had a blank sheet of paper. I was like, how do we want to invest? And which was really creative and very entrepreneurial in itself. And we had a really wide mandate. The family office that backs us and gives us the capital that we invest today 
made most of their money in oil and gas or continues to make most of their money in oil and gas. It was like oil and gas was off the table and anything else was on the table, which is really, really fun. And we said, well, there's a whole bunch of industries we could potentially be interested in. I was still interested in tech and telecom and Kyle had a business services background mostly. And, and so he was interested there, but we got to think really broadly. And what we narrowed in on is we, we know we like a handful of sort of business characteristics, regardless of industry. We know we wanted to buy businesses that had recurring revenue, that had some tailwinds for growth, and that had great unit economics. And then the style in which we did that, we can be really flexible, but we knew we wanted to work with really talented managers and entrepreneurs and operators. And when we when we first got going, in fact, actually, before we got going, we're sort of aligning with the family that was going to back us on how we wanted to invest. We, you know, they said, you got a blank sheet of paper. What are you going to do? And we said, okay, great. Let's, how about this industry? How about that industry? But then we started talking about different models and how we would invest in different models, which is how the search fund investing that, we, that is now a majority of what we do came to be as well. Going back to, I guess, maybe more directly answer your question about specific parts of my background, you know, Ridgemont's, I was there for 13 years. Their, their philosophy was generally to be the first time institutional capital into a company. And that meant usually buying founder-owned businesses. We had we generally had pretty deep domain expertise. I was a tech and telecom investor. We had a team focused on healthcare, a team focused on business services and industrials. And so we were very sort of thematic and thesis-driven as to the businesses we looked for. And then, you know, got pretty deep in diligence and tried to identify great businesses that we could that we could back. Generally, we were more comfortable. We were comfortable paying higher prices for really high quality businesses as opposed to being a sort of bottom feeder. And I think that carries through to what we do today as well. So sort of a number of elements that you know, got picked up from my past, both at Bain and at, but, but mostly at Ridgemont that carry forward to Miramar. And I think Kyle would say very similar things, but I'll let him maybe just dovetail with his own background and how that, how that ties into what we're doing now. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Kurt. You know, my my career in investing kind of started at Austin Ventures, and we were really more focused on kind of LBO, maybe, maybe management buyout focused. And so I saw a lot of business services, saw a lot of kind of private equity deals for the first time. And what I'd say I took away from that is I, I learned what excellence looks like. Founders and some of the team that I worked for, I was really fortunate to get us placed on that team. They're still mentors to us. I still keep in touch with them. When I went off to business school and ultimately ended up at Redbird, what I found was I'm probably a little more entrepreneurial than I had thought. And I focused on that in business school. And I really couldn't have found a better place to land than Redbird. Redbird's a large kind of growth equity firm, New York and Dallas based. And all three of the partners there at the time were very entrepreneurial in their own way. There's a lot of focus on just finding interesting ideas and going and building businesses. No kind of vanilla private equity models. It was all about just going out there, being scrappy and putting proprietary deals together. And it kind of opened up this whole new world to me that was different than the investing I had done in Austin Ventures. And it kind of gave me an outlet for that entrepreneurial spirit. And in fact, you know, Kurt was talking about how the the family kind of challenged us with a blank sheet of paper. It was Kurt who said, hey, have you guys ever heard of search funds? You know, and, and I had actually talked to a couple investors here in Dallas about becoming a searcher at one point while I was at Redbird. And so all of that started to come together. I've learned a lot from Kurt, just his his uh, focus on tech and telecom and some of the things that are in software, some of the things that come out of that business model and kind of coming to a family that gives us that, that blank sheet to go pursue some of our passions was kind of a, a breath of fresh air. And so I think you can see a lot of that of why we're continuing to do search and how we've put together some of the businesses that we have. So with being backed by a family office, is there, and given a, a blank sheet of paper, like, is there a favorite way or style or, model of investing that you you feel like resonates most with what you want to do it's it's funny alex as we were preparing for this this podcast we sort of tried to organize our thoughts a little bit and kyle and i you can see a smile on my face right now on the video but kyle and i are we just pinch ourselves that we get to do what we get to do it's an incredible amount of fun just for context you know miramar invests about or miramar equity partners invest about $50 million a year. 
80 or more percent of that is in the search fund model. The other 20% is in what we call platform businesses. So those are ones that we control. We're generally writing larger equity checks into those. And that's a very rifle shot approach. You know, we've got two platforms today. We're not really looking to add a third. But both in our search fund investing and in our platform investing, there's just sort of a lot of different ways to make money. And we we sort of it's like asking what's your favorite child. <laughs> like you don't have one. You you love all your kids. And when we look across our portfolio and we see CEOs that are pursuing different strategies, they're trying to create value in different ways. It's hard to pick a favorite, but it's a fun exercise, I guess, to think through. We as we were preparing for this podcast, we sort of thought, you know, there's sort of like broadly three ways to make money in investing. Just to lay it out, you know, one of them is the classic LBO, buy a business for relatively cheap, use a decent amount of leverage. You need some growth, but not a ton of growth and pay down debt, generate a bunch of cash flow. You need to buy a profitable business and generate cash and and then exit and it's a good way to make money. And we've got a, you know, a number of different businesses in our portfolio pursuing that path. And we can we can talk about those in, in just a minute. And then you've got sort of MA driven strategies, sort of maybe 2A and 2B there is the 2A would be the sort of roll-up strategy or serial serial acquisition strategy, which I know you just covered with Jay and Jason, the podcast that just got released earlier this week which we've got a bunch of that in our portfolio as well. And we really enjoy some of those businesses. 2B might be a M&A driven strategy, but it's, it's a little, little more transformative, maybe more rifle shot M&A as opposed to doing a bunch of smaller deals. And we can talk about a couple of examples there. And then the last one is, is sort of growth-oriented um, investments that are going to get all, all or the vast majority of their return just from growth and not from any of those other sort of levers. My guess is if we went and divided up our portfolio based on which strategies CEOs are pursuing across across our portfolio, it'd be reasonably evenly divided among those three buckets. And so we've got a good amount of all three of those. And that means a good amount of fun and a good amount of variety for us. One question before diving into the first one, Classic LBO. I'd love to know if over the time of your investing, you've seen interest from prospective search CEOs in any particular bucket, or if they've shifted around somewhat, like maybe one one of the three has become really popular recently, but wasn't prior. And I'd love to know, has that distribution shifted around some, or has it been fairly stable even across the board? Yeah, I guess what I would say is, you know, uh, number three and, and Kurt's outline there. So the organic growth is usually the most popular focus, at least up front. And I would say like probably the, the least popular focus has typically been number two, which is kind of M&A driven. My guess is that the popularity of an M&A-driven strategy has increased. A roll-up seemed to be a little bit more common today, or at least the pursuit of roll-up seemed to be a little bit more common today than it was even just three or four years ago when we started investing in it. Structuring the acquisition with some kind of unfunded commitment amount up front has become a little bit more popular that gives the, the searchers a little bit of dry powder to use. And then the LBO, I would say, is, is pretty rare. Like There needs to be some kind of growth driver for a searcher to really kind of get excited behind an industry. But different different things like you've seen come out in the industry where there there are ways to buy cheap. You usually are getting a pretty good multiple on things. I think the appetite for debt's kind of increased. But I would say like if there's one that's come become more popular over time, my guess is it's number two, just M&A driven strategies. Just dovetailing on that, Kyle, I, I remember the first Harvard Business School search fund conference that I went to. I think it was actually even before we had officially formed Miramar, but we knew we wanted to figure out investing in search funds and there was an investor panel and they, they were asked a question. Somebody asked a question about roll-ups and one of the investors, I can't remember who it was, mentioned historically in the search fund world, roll-up was a four-letter word. You know, that was, hey, we're, we're already taking the risk of backing a young and experienced CEO. Why would we want to add the execution risk of acquiring additional businesses and the integration that comes with that, et cetera? And I can see the logic of that. I think if you rewind the clock, you know, 15 or 20 years in the search fund world, first of all, there weren't that many deals getting done, but a lot of them looked more like a bit of a classic LBO, maybe with some growth thrown in, but you're fundamentally, you're going to buy a business at five times EBITDA. You're going to put a couple of turns of debt on it. And, and if you've got a good recurring revenue business, 
that generates good cash flow because it's low capital intensity and good margins, then you're going to make a good return. And, and so, so sort of historically, the classic LBO was the most popular. And then especially with not advent, but the increasing popularity of software as a target for searchers and just a target for all private equity investors everywhere over the last decade or decade plus, growth has become more in focus perhaps than, than the sort of classic LBO type. And then as some serial acquisition strategies have performed exceptionally well, I think a lot of investors have realized, wait a minute, that's a, that's a really good way to make money too. Why don't we go do that? And, and you, I think you've got to pick your spots carefully. We can talk in a minute about what the characteristics are that might make a good roll-up strategy and what might not. If you pick your spots well, it can be a really good place to make money. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's dive into the classic LBO one. That'd be, I think, a good place to start in terms of walking through the three. What are some kind of characteristics that you've seen for these for this method? And then maybe some examples that are helpful. Yeah, sure. I'll, I guess I'll, I'll start. I, I learned this recently, this, this concept, but your listeners and you, Alex, may have heard of the... Will Thorndike talks about the rule of 10. I think a lot of investors have heard, especially because of the popularity of software recently, the rule of 40 in software, which is you know, growth rate plus free cash flow margin, you know, and to be 40 or better, that's a really high quality business. And Will Thorndike has the, the rule of 10, which is your EBITDA multiple at purchase plus your customer churn rate, or it could be gross dollar churn rate, should be 10 or less. And if if you can do that, then you've got a really high quality business. And in my mind, that's sort of a classic LBO setup. If you can buy something for a mid single digit EBITDA multiple, and it's got recurring revenue, it generates cash. And if that recurring revenue is such high quality that you retain 98% of it per year, for example, then then you let's say you bought something for five times EBITDA and it's got 98% retention or 2% churn. So you just hit a seven on the rule of 10. That's probably about as good as you can do. Really hard to hit the rule of 10. But if you can do something like that, you've got a, you've got a really compelling way to make money on your hands. So you know, if you if fundamentally, if you're buying a business for five or six times EBITDA, so you're buying it at something like a 16 to 20% you know, pre-tax yield, the business doesn't have much capex, so turns EBITDA into free cash flow at a really high rate, and then you can get you know a reasonable amount of growth, you know eight ten percent a year, which is not heroic, but certainly more than GDP. Just add your yield and your and your growth rate together, and you've got roughly your unlevered IRR. So if you can buy it at a sixteen to twenty percent pre tax yield and then grow at eight to ten percent, you're sort of sort of in the mid twenties to thirty percent IRR before you even add leverage or do anything else with the business. So, I mean, that's pretty simple sort of monkey math, but it turns out you you can make money that way. I don't know, Kyle, did I miss anything or anything you'd add there? No. I mean, like, honestly, you covered almost all of it. There's a couple of examples in our portfolio that we can dive through, but I think it, from, from our perspective as well, it's just easier to kind of get your arms around diligence compared to a roll-up when you're looking at one single kind of classic stable business, as opposed to thinking about how you're going to integrate different things and do a bunch of the other transactions that we'll talk about here in a second. But yeah, I think Kurt described it pretty well. Yeah, you kind of mentioned a little bit where it's not the roll-up strategy where execution risk becomes something you have to think a lot about. But within LBO, like what kinds of questions or risks are you trying to optimize for or get figured out for this method before making an investment? Maybe... Alex, at a, at a sort of generalized level, I'll dive into an example here in a moment, but at a generalized level, you know, what you pay up front really matters. Paying five to six times for this model works really well. Paying eight to nine times doesn't work nearly as well, mostly because then you rely much more heavily on your ability to grow the business than, than you do if you're paying five to six times. So going in price is a sort of pretty fundamental thing. We focus in our analysis of businesses sort of across the spectrum of all the types of ways to make money that we're going to talk about today. We focus more heavily on the quality of revenue than we do on anything else, I think. And so in a, in a sort of classic LBO type investment, we're going to look pretty heavily at what is the, what is the quality of that revenue. 
And it might be a contractually recurring revenue business, in which case we can get pretty pretty granular on churn stats. It might not be as uh, like if you think about Transdime as a business, not contractually recurring, really 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 good business, not contractually recurring. So that you're going to look at other things to assess revenue quality, repeat purchase behavior. You might look at macroeconomic factors and their influence on revenue, those sorts of things. So you want to have really high retention or really low churn, and then you want to have some growth tailwind for the business, ideally. You know, an example that that I would give is we're we're an investor in, and I'm on the board of a business called ISPN. It uh, it's based in in just outside of Kansas City. They provide sort of technical help desk services to rural internet providers. So if if Grandma out in West Texas gets her internet from Big Ben Telephone and something goes, her Wi-Fi goes down and she can't fix it herself. She calls a 1-800 number and she thinks she's calling Big Ben Telephone. But in fact, that call is getting routed to ISPN. A service rep at ISPN can help resolve that issue for her so that Big Ben Telephone doesn't have to roll a truck and send a technician out to her house. That's sort of the way the business works. And we get paid on a recurring revenue basis by our customers to to provide that service. They pay us per per subscriber, so their end subscriber, they pay us per subscriber per month, and we have very high retention rates in that business. And Jeff Neblett and Scott Lauber, who who bought the business through their search fund, paid a mid single digit multiple for that business. So we've got good good purchase price. We've got high quality revenue, and then the business was growing. You know, call it in the in the single digits or so. Call it mid to high single digits when we bought the business, and and that was that was sort of could be good enough. And obviously, Jeff and Scott have been pursuing ways to grow it faster. And they've done that um, since they've acquired the business. So if you put a attractive purchase price, high retention, high revenue quality business, now with double digit growth, you're going to make money. <laughs> like You don't even need to have anything heroic on the back end happen. You don't need to go do M&A. Like, that, that will be a successful investment if you put those three elements together. And so that's that's one example in our portfolio that I'd call out of this sort of classic LBO. One question before going into M&A strategies on customer churn. I would love to know within the business models or companies that you've seen with really low churn and high retention in their revenue, uh, really high revenue quality, what are some factors that have correlated most strongly to a high retention rate with companies? I, I assume stuff like the product is mission critical, or it's a small piece of their of that company's income statements. I don't think about it nearly as much. But are there any like maybe less obvious correlating factors with high revenue quality? Yeah, I'll start with mainly kind of business services where it, maybe it's not contractually recurring, but highly reoccurring. It's usually one of two things. It's just super painful for somebody to switch, and so they just don't want to go through the pain when that contract renew or is up for renewal. Or you are the best provider or the most logical provider in a service. And so it just doesn't even make sense for them to switch, whether it's because you're in their location or you provide a better service vis-a-vis uh, -vis what the other providers provide. Yeah, and the only thing I'd add to that is that the competitive intensity in a market matters. And you want high switching costs and you'd love to have in a, in a market relatively low comp competitive intensity. Maybe that comes from high barriers to entry. Maybe it just comes from being in a reasonably small market. There's a, a great line from one of the Harvard Business School professors that teaches about search funds. You know, there, there are riches in the niches. And you know, in, in software businesses, oftentimes where, where growth is a primary driver of returns, oftentimes we're looking for reasonably large market sizes. But in a business like ISPN, it, serving rural internet providers, it's a big enough market it's not a massive market, but it's big enough for us to grow at a decent rate for a really long time. But it's not so big that it's going to attract a ton of competition to come in and try to try to cut price to win business or do other things to, to steal business away from us. So low competitive intensity matters. We'll, we'll often spend a good amount of time and diligence on the front end of an investment looking into the competitive intensity in the market. So... Moving into the second method, so M&A-driven strategies, you talked about two subcategories, those being roll-up and transformative M&A. You also mentioned now this is becoming a more popular of the three methods uh, recently. Uh, maybe give us a kind of a walkthrough of how you divide those two subcategories into roll-up and transformative and which falls into which. 
Yeah, sure. I think the, the biggest way to differentiate the two subcategories there is to think about roll up would likely be your strategy going into a deal. Like you're, and I'll come back to what characteristics make a, make a target more attractive, but you're coming into a thesis, buying a platform and knowing that your most of your growth is going to come through, you know, serial acquisitions. Whereas the other one, the transformative M&A, you probably are entering the deal thinking it's more of a classic LBO or you have some organic growth strategies and you have the opportunity or you're forced to kind of pivot and grow or transform your company through you know, vertical integration or expanding geographically, offering new services. But you make a transformative acquisition that may have been unplanned when you started the deal. And so maybe I'll start with roll-ups. You know, one of the reasons I think this is becoming more popular is in markets like healthcare, frankly, are becoming more popular in search. And what searchers will find is they find good industries where it's got some of the fundamentals that you want, where there's tailwinds, it's growing rapidly. Maybe there's a reoccurring or recurring kind of revenue model, but they can't find kind of a business of scale. They find a bunch of businesses that are subscale. And the idea is, can they combine multiple ones to make one scale platform? And so for our, from our standpoint, the way we look at it is there's still a strong focus on the, on the revenue model. We still want highly recurring or reoccurring revenue. We want to make sure that there's still good returns on capital. So we're still very kind of disciplined in our approach to making sure that the industry and the revenue model makes sense. But where we can maybe squint a little bit and not have to have it perfect is in organic growth with that starting platform. And what you'd like to see, ideally, you find a, a really solid one platform that's got scalable systems or people or processes or brand reputation or whatever it may be, you buy that and then your growth is going to come by organically adding on other acquisitions, either within a region or it can be can be kind of a broader region if you need, but you're basically doing the exact same thing at these. And you may or may not integrate them. We've got kind of both models in our portfolio where some are more run more of a centralized or decentralized process or decentralized strategy and some integrate them all. But the idea is you're buying kind of similar businesses and adding them together to take advantage of synergies, pricing synergies, back office integration, whatever it may be. So I guess where I'd start with there is like giving you an example of one of the deals that we've done in that strategy would be HOA management. It's an industry where we started building the thesis. It's a large market. There's a lot of tailwinds for growth. One of the things that kind of jumped out to us in the very, very beginning is there was not a large private equity platform in this space. But when we talked to other private equity firms or we talked to business owners that were that were running small organizations in this industry, they talked about how common it was for private equity investors to reach out to them to try to buy them. And so it started to become a pattern of, well, if there's so much PE interest, why is there not a platform? And I think what we ultimately came down to is there's two giants in the space. One's a public company, one's family owned, it happens to be based here in Dallas, which made diligence a little bit more convenient for us. But we saw that like there really wasn't kind of that third player that could make that platform for middle market private equity. So if you're willing to go down a little bit further down downstream, start with something a little bit smaller, go in with kind of a lean operating team or something that looked a little bit more like a search model, you could take advantage of some of the opportunities by creating this inventory to bundle and sell to private equity. And so one of the things that we'll look for when we diligence an industry for for a roll-up is, is there private equity interest? Is there evidence of private equity firms, middle market private equity firms doing this at a larger scale that would make kind of obvious exit candidates? And if if so, how are they doing it? And how are we going to compete with those? And by the way, which is not to say we're doing this just with the intention to flip this thing to private equity in the near term. One of the benefits for Kyle and I of working, you know, at sort of at a family office with family office capital is we don't have any time horizon, so we can own businesses for really long lengths of time. But you'd, you'd like to know going in that you can get out if you want to, and and that can be an attractive exit. And so we we sometimes joke about creating inventory for middle market private equity funds as part of our part of our job. Whether we do that in year five or year ten depends largely on the entrepreneur and whether they want to keep running the business and partly on what, what happens in the market and whether whether the market changes in a way that causes us to rethink exit. Yeah, it's an interesting concept thinking about, like everyone talks about, you know, think about your customer first and design the product for the problem that they, they need solved, but haven't heard it articulated as, you know, build your investment strategy for your end customer being the PE firm that's going to buy you out one day. That's an interesting phrasing I hadn't heard before. Well, I think it just gives you comfort that you're you're on to a, a good industry, right? Like PE is probably going to target industries where there are tailwinds. So it confirms kind of the, the diligence that you're performing at a very small scale. 
And it gives you the opportunity that if you're buying kind of, if you're disciplined in your buying approach. And so hopefully if you're, if you're doing a roll up and you're starting with very small assets, you're entering with a very low multiple. You may not have the growth off that multiple, but hopefully the revenue is high quality to where you've got a stable asset that you're going to tuck under other assets at that similar small multiple and you get a little bit of that arbitrage as well. Yeah, that, that's a good point. So within transformative M&A, maybe share an example there and how how that differs from the roll-up strategy specifically. Yeah, I'll let Kurt go. Most of the ones that I think fit this this dynamic are kind of under his, his watch here at Miramar. Yeah, Kyle earlier hit on the one of the key differences between these two approaches, which is mostly that the roll-up is planned on the front end and usually planned on the front end. And the transformative thing tends to be unplanned and a little more opportunistic. Uh, although I recognize certainly some roll-ups happened, maybe they were unplanned at the time. Jay and Jason, who you just had on with vector disease control, I'm not sure that the roll-up was quite planned. I think they were a couple of years into it before they started making acquisitions and then before they realized, hey, this is the flywheel's really going and, and we can really create a lot of value with it. But but oftentimes with the searchers we're backing today, they, they might go into a roll-up with that strategy in mind. Whereas we're on a, we're on a number of boards with companies that maybe thought there might be some M&A to do in their market over time, but they didn't, they didn't need that to be successful. And then it sort of fell in their lap. <laughs> so I'm on the board of a software business called BPD Zenith. It's an enterprise asset management software business. It's actually based in the UK. Two searchers that were based in the UK acquired it. And it's one of a few global players in this enterprise asset management space. Sort of, We're, we're sort of tied into the IBM Maximo ecosystem. And we, we knew who the other global players were. Some of them had presence in, in one market or, or another. And, but we didn't think we needed to do M&A to have a successful investment. The business was growing nicely. We b- bought it at a reasonable price. It you know, generates cash. And so like, there, were, there were other ways. It was sort of a bit of a combination of an LBO and a growth story, sort of method number one and method number three that we're talking about here. And six months into the deal, one of our sort of primary competitors in North America, specifically a company based in Cincinnati called Project Tech, sort of approached us and said, hey, we're ready to sell. <laughs> and now's, now's the time for us to sell. And do you want to buy now or, or maybe never? And, and you don't, six months in, especially with new CEOs, you, you generally don't want to do M&A that quickly. You'd like to make sure everybody's got their arms around the business and, and, and we feel very comfortable. But you don't always get to choose your timing. And in that case, we didn't get to choose our timing. But fortunately, the the CEOs that run that business, Henrik Fridlund and Oliver Garthwaite, are fantastic. And they built a lot of trust in the first six months. The business sort of got out of the gates pretty well. And we said, okay, I think we're we're prepared to take that risk if if the deal looks compelling enough, if the acquisition looks compelling enough and the and the price is right and those sorts of things. And and it doubled the size of the business. We, we doubled our ARR six months in. We did it with mostly debt and a little bit of equity. So sort of trying to be thoughtful about the capital structure and, you know, knock on wood, now it's six months later. So we're a year in total to the acquisition. And, and here we are sitting on twice as much ARR and probably more than twice as much EBITDA as we thought we would have. So that's, that's been a fun example that I've gotten to live firsthand as a board member. I'm on the board. I actually have two other companies going through a very similar thing right now. We'll see whether those acquisitions happen or not. But generally unplanned, very opportunistic, but potentially very transformative. And and that can be exciting. It can also add an extra layer of risk. And so you've got to be pretty careful. There has to be some value, though, even at early in a CEO's tenure of going through some sort of M&A process, even if it doesn't work, just to get that rep under their belt and, and their team as well. Because I'd imagine like there's probably folks on their team who haven't acquired a company before and haven't done a due diligence process that you know, could use that experience, especially that comes up later down the road. Is there is there some value if M&A is at all potentially a part of a company's future and getting getting some reps early on in the company's history just to get that understanding ready in case they get to use it one day? That's a good question. It might depend partly, Alex, on how much you think M&A might be a lever in the future for value creation. If, if in the case, frankly, of BPD Zenith, where we, we figured there might only be a handful of companies we might want to buy over the 
over the course of our ownership, getting a rep for, for reps sake probably wasn't on the table. It was like, we're going to either take this seriously and figure out if we want to buy this or, or not. Maybe that was partly because Oliver and Henrik both had pretty good finance backgrounds and M&A experience. So they didn't need a rep for rep sake. And other people in their business had just gone through a sale process. So they, they had at least been on one side of that table before. So probably my, my answer is generally, no, you wouldn't take a rep just for rep's sake. You'd only do it if you, could, if, if, if you were going to take that acquisition opportunity seriously. Certainly, if you thought that M&A was going to be a more meaningful portion of your sort of go forward value creation opportunity, then, then maybe that getting that rep becomes more valuable. But certainly in, in the case that I just went through with VPD Zenith, it wasn't. Building on these two M&A strategies, I'd love to hear a little bit more about why you think these are becoming more popular. You listed a few examples of Flint Group being one of them. Uh, Colin Hathaway was a great guest twice. And I think what he's doing is really interesting. I'd be, be curious, is this a strategy that you just hear more about from prospective searchers? Or are there other things you think that are driving increased interest in this one main strategy? First of all, the good news is that Colin Hathaway, as good as a podcast guest as he is, he's an even better CEO. So we have that going for us. I don't <laughs> doubt that. We're, we're happy investors in the Flint group. Yeah, you know, I think I think Kurt kind of hit on it uh, earlier in the podcast, but I think there's two things that I'd say would be my guess are driving most of this. One of it is just people have heard of the Flint Group, people have heard of some of the med spa success that that other searches are having, and so this kind of uh, story of success through a roll up model, maybe investors' propensity to pursue a roll up model has increased as well, and so search it's becoming something that searchers are trying to follow. And then I think the other one is what I mentioned a minute ago is that I think searchers are finding interesting industries where there's great dynamics, you know, good revenue models, great tailwinds for growth. Some of those we can talk about in a little bit with uh, in healthcare, where it's you know new practices or new forms of care for healthcare, where they're finding lots of targets, but they're all very small. And you know, I look at our pipeline of the deals we're trying to close right now. There's three or four that would fit this this model to where they found an industry that they wanted to invest in. They found hundreds and hundreds of targets and collectively, maybe three or four of them, if they slap together, could be a really interesting business. But right now there's just nothing of scale in the, in the industry for them to go buy. So the idea is to start with a handful and build a platform from scratch. And I think those two things are driving, they make it a little bit easier for, for searchers to find something that might meet the qualifications that our investors are looking for and find readily available targets where they're not having to pay 10 times for something that's got $5 million in EBITDA. The other thing I'd add to that is, I think those two things are spot on. And the third thing I might add is, if you think about the, the prototype of the searcher that raises a search fund today, it might look a little different than it did 15 or 20 years ago. And one of those differences is, there are a number of searchers, maybe 20% or so, that have had private equity experience pre-search and pre-MBA. You know, the private equity industry didn't exist like it does today, 20 years ago. And so it's much less common to have gone and done a two or three year associate stint at a private equity firm before you got your MBA, where then you learned about a search fund and you decided, hey, this is what I want to do. And, and because the buy and build sort of MA driven strategy is so prevalent among mid-market and you know, just all private equity funds, you get people that actually have had direct experience pursuing that strategy in another context that launch searches. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, that's a good point. Colin owes me a Flint Group hat, which hopefully by the time this episode comes out, it's in my mailbox and I get to wear it on the next episode. But yeah, see, that looks awesome. I'm looking forward to seeing that one on my countertop. I think moving into organic growth, this is a, another really interesting area that I have a lot of interest in. I'd love to hear which companies and characteristics fall into this group. And then let's dive into some examples here and perhaps even some from your own portfolio. One, this is this is probably the most exciting for me personally. But two, you know, I, what I think about the easiest way to frame, like there's a bunch of business services and generic business models that Kurt and I can both kind of manage. But if there's one expertise that Kurt has that he will 100% handle the Miramar deals in software. And if there's one in... In my bailiwick, it's healthcare. And I think those two are the easiest ways to kind of 
describe kind of some of the portfolio companies that are pursuing this strategy within our portfolio. But I'll let Kurt start with healthcare, or sorry, software, because I think it's the easiest way to display some of this. Yeah, maybe just zooming, I'd love to, I could give a bunch of examples of great growth companies in our portfolio. I'll, I'll have to narrow it down. Uh, but before I get there, I'll maybe just talk at a general level. You know, for each of these strategies, whether you're doing an LBO, whether you're doing a roll up, or whether you're pursuing a growth business, we care about recurring revenue, we care about growth, and we care about good unit economics. It just happens to, and, and, and like we're not going to sacrifice and have a really crappy recurring revenue business just because it's growing. Like that, that's not something we're very interested in. But obviously, with this organic growth story, I mean, it's literally in the name. <laughs> we're focused, we're focused a lot on growth. And, and I think one of the characteristics that you see here with successful growth stories is they're serving markets where the, there's some underlying tailwind in the market. And there is a lot of white space, a lot of sort of non-consumption today that, that a good company is going to take that customer from a non-consumer of that product or service today to a consumer of that product or service. So a couple of examples, but one of them is Swugo is a, just a great software business. They provide event management software. Uh, a guy named Chris Sykes is the CEO of that business. Fantastic CEO, by the way. Chris bought that business. A little bit of a scary time. He got it under LOI in late 2019. We were due to close the business in March of 2020, and whoop, COVID hit. And this is an event management software business. So it's a bit of a you know looking into the abyss of what is going to happen here. Fortunately, Chris had the fortitude and the and the persistence, frankly, to to get through the scary times of the initial phase of COVID, convince investors that this was going to remain a good business, and. You know, the fundamental growth story of Swugo from April of 2020 when we closed the business to now has been a little bit of stealing market share from some maybe more legacy competitors that didn't have, that hadn't invested in their product quite as much as Swugo had, but also sort of converting non consuming customers, you know, might, might be an enterprise that's hosting an event and they, they didn't use any sophisticated event management software and now they do converting those non-consumers to consumers. And so the, you know, the business has done tremendously well. We bought it with call it low sing- I won't give specific numbers, but low single digits of ARR and the business is up close to four times in about two years from from then to now or a little more than two years. So just a tremendous success story and and really fun to be a part of as well. We're again happy investors there too. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll draw on the same thing. Like healthcare is the same thing. Like one of the things we talk about is, is very similar to software is the, the white space. And so what we look for in, in healthcare, you know, I think it's easy to make a case for, for uh, demand outspacing supply in healthcare just because of the aging population or general population growth. What we look for is some driver on top of that. And I think the easiest way to explain it is it's usually providing better access to care to a certain form of care or a better mode of care that there's not enough access to. There's really two portfolio companies in our portfolio that, that probably fit that description the best. The first one is called Encore Infusion. It's ambulatory infusion practices. It's not a novel concept. There's kind of been hospital infusion and home infusion for a really long time. For whatever reason, though, ambulatory had been underbuilt. As we got into the, the diligence, we saw that, look, there's more and more biologic drugs coming to market, being prescribed. We believe that that's probably the best mode of care for many patients that have chronic diseases that need to get this care regularly, sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly, sometimes quarterly. And we were reading stories about people having to drive 100, 200, 300 miles to the nearest infusion uh, facility just to get an infusion. And this wasn't during COVID. This was kind of pre-COVID. COVID has kind of accelerated that transformation a bit. Um, but we believe there was a there was a uh, opportunity to go and build de novos and, and take care, take advantage of some of that white space. And so you know, would we do transformative acquisitions? We might, but we think the unit economics are so strong by building on DeNovo's that that's, that's our pursuit. Indigo Physiotherapy is kind of very similar. We got to partner with Dr. Sam out of Baltimore. Charlie's the CEO. You know, I don't know if this is a revolutionary treatment, but we're one of the very few groups in the entire United States that are very, that are focused on this particular treatment of care for women. You can get it done at many of the PT chains that are more broadly based, but they don't specialize in this. Well, we're specialized in, in this. I think the more studies that they do that show that there are more women that need this care. So the educating of the market is drawing more demand, and there's just not enough supply of specialized clinics like this. And so again, like 
Would we do M&A? Perhaps, but there's probably not a lot of M&A targets out there. But we can open up these boxes at such great economics and there's so much white space that we can believe we can grow organically just by opening up de novos. I'd say like, you know, we're like one of the other ones, med spas kind of fits this exact same kind of strategy that we were talking about. But the exciting thing about med spas is I do think there's the opportunity to kind of combine multiple strategies. And that's where we get really excited because I think you can open up de novos. There's still so much more demand than there is supply. The unit economics of the de novos are extremely attractive and there are enough M&A targets out there, not really of scale, but small little tuck-ins that you can make that you can combine two different growth strategies to really expand. And one of our platforms, I think the easiest way to illustrate this, I won't give a whole lot of details, but in fact, I think we have more EBITDA in that business than we do capital invested, equity invested. Yeah, we, we're Alex, we're investors in two and about to be three med spot chains, one on the primarily focused on the East Coast of the U.S., sort of partners with plastic surgeons to do, sort of acquires the minimally invasive part of their plastic surgery business, which might otherwise be known as a med spa. And then one on the West Coast, two, two groups of awesome entrepreneurs. And then we're hopefully, knock on wood, two or three weeks away from investing in, in one in the U.K., based in London. So go get your Botox and give us a call. We'll, we'll hook you up. One thing we talked about earlier was that within these three methods, like each of these are one great way to make money, but there are really exciting outcomes when multiple methods combine together. I'd love to kind of hear about some examples where companies have combined multiple methods to create really exciting or interesting outcomes. Absolutely. I guess if you could do all three, you'd be in, you'd be in heaven. Usually ends up being two out of the three if you put them together. Yeah, I mean, Kyle already mentioned the med spa businesses, which combine just like really good organic growth. I mean, if you just, if you could look at what's happening in the med spa market, go look at Allergan's Botox numbers or anything related to that, whether it's laser hair removal or fillers or microdermabrasion or whatnot, it's, it's this classic space of turning non-consumption into consumption. So at first it was designed for women in their 40s call it, or not designed for, but it was used by women in their 40s. And now it's increasingly used by women in their 30s and 20s. And now men in their 40s and men in their 30s. And it's, you know, so everybody wants to look younger. So just tremendous market growth, a lot of white space left to grow. And, and each of our med spa platforms has sort of taken advantage of that value driver in addition to the value driver of M&A. And so, you know, there will be some combination of M&A and de novo openings, which is sort of inorganic growth and organic growth is going to drive those businesses forward. Super exciting and just a lot of fun to be invested in those. Another one that, that is maybe combines the organic growth path with the transformative M&A path is a business that we've invested in. I guess it's been probably three years or so down in Brazil. So we actually invest a portion of our portfolio is invested internationally. I've already mentioned uh, software business in the UK. We, we invested in a business called Agassiz down in Brazil, in Sao Paulo in 2019. The company, and we sort of thought when we went into it that this was going to be an organic growth story. It was going to be sort of method number three. That was the value creation lever that, that the CEOs were going to pull. So two searchers in that case bought the business. Yeah, the company provides computer rental, sort of computer rental as a service, if you will. So you know, an enterprise, PepsiCo, Brazil need, has a thousand employees that need laptops it's more of a custom in Brazil than it is in the US to rent those laptops instead of buy them. And so, so Agassiz would purchase a bunch of laptops, do all the work to load the software onto it and security and whatever the, whatever the customer needed, deliver those laptops under some long-term lease agreement, three to five years usually with that customer. So just to, it had good unit, the business had good unit economics, the market had a bunch of growth behind it. And so that was that was sort of leg one of the stool. Well, some transformative M&A, I don't want to say fell in our lap because I don't think that gives, gives proper credit to the CEOs that, that have executed on the M&A. But, but we have found ourselves with the opportunity to acquire a, num- a, a few different businesses so far. One of them that was perhaps the most transformative from a business model perspective was a company that was in a related business. They were in the business of reselling used computer hardware. 
And if you think about the business model of a company like Agassiz that rents hardware, well, you, you buy all these Lenovo laptops and you rent them out for five years. You got to do something with them at the end when they come off lease. And maybe you can release them. You can, you can try to sell them. Well, it, it sure helps when you, when you have channels built out to then sell that resale equipment. So we did an acquisition, a fairly small acquisition of a company that gave us that capability to go resell those computers. So now, now the unit economics look even better. We buy the computer for X and we lease it out for Y, but what we sell it for on the back end now is dramatically improved based on that acquisition. So just the, the unit economics got way better. And then we've also had the opportunity with that business to acquire two direct competitors in the computer leasing business, one of which was the number one player in, in all of Brazil. They sort of serve regions of Brazil that Agassiz previously had not served. And then the, 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 next, the last acquisition, the one that we're uh, doing actually right now or just, just closed, is one that smaller more regional player, but we now sort of, we went from being the number two provider in the market when we acquired Agassiz to sort of far and away the number one player in the market. We did that through M&A, and then we have also layered on top this really nice organic growth story. So the business pro forma for the M&A, which probably all told the M&A has roughly doubled the size of the business. And if you look at just EBITDA, but from the time that we acquired the business to now, EBITDA is up 10x roughly in three years. And there's only been about 50% more equity that went in the business to, to make that happen. So just like a tremendous value creation story of the last three years. One other thesis, I'm kind of jumping ahead here to perhaps our best business question, but I would love to hear some other theses, theses of interest. And I know one of them is, is software. I would love to hear kind of your thoughts around software vertical market software, Constellation, any rollups there that you find interesting and maybe where you feel like there's still opportunity in that space. It feels like an area that's become pretty popular and there's a lot of lot more folks that I'm aware of doing something in software, but I'd love to hear your take on it and what your view is. Yeah, I, I first started investing in vertical market software in 2007 when SaaS was sort of something that was maybe still a little bit on the horizon to some degree. And it's just it's just a wonderful business model. You know, it has all the things we're looking for, recurring revenue, generally growth tailwinds due to white space and non-consumption conversion, great unit economics. That doesn't always translate into great free cash flow margins. Uh, oftentimes, if you're growing a business, you might be reinvesting, but just, just a wonderful business model generally. Kyle and I, in addition to backing searchers that are working on their own theses, we've also got sort of a list of, of theses we're interested in in pursuing on our own via this sort of platform strategy. And, and if we invest, if we make one new platform investment every two years, that would be that would be plenty for us. So it's not like we're spending every day thinking about this, but but we but we enjoy thinking about it. And and one of the things we would love to do in our platform business or or really otherwise, even in our search fund businesses, is replicate constellation software, which is which has been done before. We would not be the first by any stretch, David Burkle's doing a wonderful job at Banyan Software with the same thing. And there have been there have been others as well. But I sort of fell in love with Constellation many years ago. And I've owned this stock personally in my portfolio for a bunch of years and been very happy to have have, have had that. But it's just, it, you know, they're pursuing a very different strategy than a lot of other software investors are. They are they get to the rule of 40 a very different way than, than most folks do. It's 5% growth and 35 or more percent free cash flow margins. And, and the, the magic of that business is the market, in, in terms of the market to acquire software businesses, is so vast. And they've got so much white space in this context to go acquire businesses that they've been able to deploy really large amounts of capital to grow their business. And the most amazing statistic about Constellation is that they, you know, they, they've raised $25 million of primary equity when they got started. I believe the year was 1995. Omers was the investor, probably best investment Omers ever made by a, by a wide margin. And they've never raised another dollar of outside equity. And the business is worth $25 billion today. 
you know, that is just absolutely phenomenal. And, and we don't need to make a thousand times our money. You know, we can make a lot less than that and still be really happy. But I just, I still think there's more to do. And, and you, it might have a different flavor to it. it. You might buy stuff that's a little growthier than what Constellation buys. You know, they're very, pretty strictly on premise. And if uh, on premise software business is converting to SaaS, they might even shut down that conversion. So we might have a different spin on it, but I just, I love that business. We love that business model. We'd love to find more ways to do something like that in the future. Obviously, most of your search investments are entrepreneur-driven in terms of what theses they find interesting. It's, it's hard to take an entrepreneur and give them a thesis and say, go execute. Often they're doing that, that work on their end. But for the platforms and investing that you do that's directly from Miramar, what, what are some ways that you develop theses and then validate that they exist and have markets? One thing we talked about earlier is that if there's PE interest in a certain area, that that's one indicator that it could be fruitful. But what are some other kind of indicators that you're on the right track with the given thesis? Kyle, do you want to talk about the origin story of our infusion thesis and sort of how that came to be? Yeah, sure. So, you know, that one started with, we got sent a little teaser from a business school friend of mine who had found a, a really tiny little deal in California. I never, I didn't even know what an infusion was, frankly came across my desk and you start reading about the business model. And it's, you know, it's everything that I mentioned earlier. There's, there's kind of an, a, a drastic undersupply of this particular treatment. And then this sounds dark, but at the end of the day, like these patients that you're treating need this care, they're chronically ill, you know, from a recurring revenue standpoint, that's kind of what you're looking for. And so we, we looked at the business model of an, of an ambulatory infusion clinic and it looked a lot like DeVita, which is a terrific business model. And so we dug in a little bit on this little bitty bespoke clinic out in California that ultimately didn't end up being the right platform for us for a lot of different reasons. But, you know, every waking moment, if I had spare time, I was trying to make calls to people who may or may not understand this industry. A lot of healthcare private equity firms I called said, yeah, we've heard of it. There's just nothing of scale for us to go buy. You know, we started getting on industry newsletters, started going to conferences and just kind of developing the thesis in the background. And, and there's been other kind of search theses that have been, you know, I'd say like tangential to this. Like we, we do have a business called NutriShare out in California that's similar to what we're doing. It's a mail order kind of TPN pharmacy, but same thing, kind of a, a very specific ailment. It's chronically, if you have this ailment, you're going to be chronically ill for likely the rest of your life. I think 5% of people end up in, uh, healing from it, but you're going to be on these medications for life. And so if you can serve these patients, you can provide them access to better care, you're going to serve them into perpetuity, right? And so we started digging on the ambulatory infusion clinic. Every private equity guy I talked to had heard of it and said they gave up trying to find a platform. And so really the next part was trying to go find a proprietary platform to start with and build a management team. And through the industry conferences, you know, we met a couple people in our own network who had expertise in certain models of this care. And we started kind of organically building this management team and found a proprietary deal and put it all together. But it usually starts with kind of a little spark I think one thing Kurt and I have in, in common is that we're intellectually curious. And so if you if you give us an idea and we kind of, we're kind of like a dog on a bone, like I just I couldn't leave this thesis alone, no matter how many times it just looked impossible, and ultimately it kind of came to fruition. And I think that's similar with all of our platforms. The HOA thing was similar. The Marina platform that Kurt leads was very similar to where you know it starts with a little spark, it grows, it grows, it grows, and ultimately we kind of all comes together with a management team and a deal. Can, can I tell the Marina story really quick? Because it's fun. It's a sort of a funny story a little bit. So we had, I, we'd come up with this thesis, Kyle mentioned, just being curious. We, we love what we get to do, partly because it's, it's very creative. But my wife's family has a, has a boat in a marina out at a lake two hours west of Dallas. And we were out there for the weekend on the lake and, and there was a customer appreciation barbecue. And the owner of the marina was there, you know, thanking customers, you know, that sort of thing, just a very classic sort of thing. And they were like, Hey, we'll go get a free beer and a burger. That sounds like fun. And we show up and the owner of the marina is there. And I just got to talking to him. What's it like owning marinas? How many marinas do you own? What's the, talk to me about the business model of the marina. What do you pay for these things? And, and I just got fascinated by it. It's a recurring revenue. It's like a parking garage on water and recurring revenue business, just predictable cash flows, uh, great margins, just a, Good business. And so we sort of put it on this list. Kyle and I have a list of 10 or 12 theses, industry ideas, just stuff we're stuff we might pursue at some point. 
And we had three undergrad college interns uh, working for us. This was I guess, three summers ago. And, and we said to each of these interns, hey, you're going to work, work on deals as deals come up, but we also want you to have sort of a research project over the course of the summer. So pick one off of this list. Pick one thesis that you might be interested in researching and helping us sort of either build the case or reject the case to pursue this, this thesis. And we had this awesome intern named Noah Penny from the University of Texas. And Speaking of a dog on a bone, man, Noah got fired up about this thesis. There's really two big marina aggregators in the country. They both happen to be based in Dallas, which is where Kyle and I are based. And Noah, as a sophomore in college, cold called the CEO of both of these marina aggregators, took one of them to breakfast and like, you know, picked his brain for an hour, comes back with all these notes about the industry. And that was what catalyzed our our sort of, all right, we're going to go run with this thesis a bit harder. We started doing our own diligence. Through the course of that, we ended up meeting a couple of guys who had been at the number two aggregator called Suntex. And we ended up partnering with them, sort of backing them almost in a search context to go search for and acquire marinas. And that was about two years ago. And, and here we are. By the end of the year, we'll own 10 marinas. And it's a lot of fun along the way. And is Noah running it now? <laughs> he, he, could, he could be. Give him five years. He might be running it. <laughs> Fortunately, we've got two really capable guys running it, but Noah is fantastic. And it's just, it, it's a great example. Kyle talked about being curious. We both get to pull the thread on things that we're interested in, in the course of our work. And Noah got interested in this and he pulled the thread and did a wonderful job of doing it. And that, that ultimately was the sort of starting point to get a, quite a bit of capital to work in this Marina thesis. It's also a great name to have for a marina roll-up. That's like Noah. That's a great one. Uh, <laughs> there you go. I'm, I'm not sure if he used that in his cold call or outreach, but <laughs> if I had that name, I would definitely be using that. Absolutely. We need to get to closing questions. Otherwise, we'll be here for two hours, which would be great. And I would love that. But we unfortunately can't do that. What strongly held belief have you changed your mind on? Uh, I'll go first. I think mine's uh, the value of executive coaching. I'll be honest, you know, I'd, I'd seen it deployed in private equity world kind of before we started doing search funds. And I was always a little skeptical of its value. I thought it was kind of more of a check the box exercise that you went through as you're trying to kind of improve the likely churn senior management teams. Now that we've been in the search fund ecosystem for a while, and we've talked to multiple searchers and investors who have worked with executive coaches, I think their values... Like I think, I think if I were a searcher, I would be very interested in trying to partner with an executive coach. I think the value is pretty clear. I haven't heard any bad stories, and so I think my my belief and my uh, my my uh, cog, I guess like recognizing that the value that an executive coach brings has flipped 180 degrees. Mine's mine's softer than that. I'm gonna go a little more personal, maybe. Mine is that the. I used to believe that the world was more of a strict meritocracy than it actually is. And I used to think that the people that rose to the top always got there by hard work and intelligence and that sort of thing. And people that remained at the bottom must must not have been hardworking or intelligent or what, what have you. And I think I've come to appreciate part of this is wisdom comes with age. Part of it is just getting a lot more humility over time. But I think I've come to appreciate the degree to which I've personally been really lucky to get where I am. And uh, I hope some of that came from hard work and intelligence, but I recognize a lot of it has come from luck. And, and I recognize that not everybody gets lucky in the ways that I have. And so I, ha I think I have a lot more respect and grace for people who may be really hardworking and smart and just haven't had the breaks that I've had or that others have had. I'm really first or glad I answered that question first because I would not have wanted to follow that answer. <laughs> Your answer reminds me of that that conference room scene in Margin Call where the banking CEO is saying, like, explain it to me like a golden retriever. You know, it's not brains that got me here. <laughs> That's a great movie. <laughs> Absolutely. What's the best business you've ever seen? I'll go first again, just in case Kurt blows me out of the water. But as we mentioned, you know, this is this is actually a, a question that we we sort of ask. And so I'm going to steal probably the best answer we've had to that or the one that sticks with me is one of our searchers or prospective searchers said it was a drug cartel. And like, I, I laughed when I heard it. And then I started thinking about it. And like, there's a lot of merit to that. I think if you're ask, actually asking for mine, mine's probably a pretty obvious answer. And it's probably Microsoft. Like it's easy to take Microsoft with 
15% year over year growth, really high, you know, 50% cash flow margins. It goes through our box of recurring revenue. And then every single day I look at my computer, I can't, I could not function in my job without Microsoft. It's just an obvious answer to me. I'm going to cheat Alex and give you three answers. <laughs> the, the first answer is Constellation Software for reasons we've already talked about. So I'll be quick on that one, but I just love that business. If you think about the framework to answer this question, it's like, well, what would be, what would the best business look like? It would, it would look like a natural monopoly. And so Google comes to mind, you know, a business with sort of decades long horizon to grow as it steals share from traditional media sort of advertising methods, uh, you know, really high operating margins, just sort of a, a wonderful business. The cheeky one that I give that I don't think is actually the best business, but it's just a fun answer is I'd love to own an NFL football team. If you think about like the industry structure, it's uh, you have a local monopoly in a cartel industry. doesn't get much better than that. The only way to get better than that is to have a natural monopoly, I guess. <laughs> you know, you have really long recurring revenue because most of your revenue comes from contractual TV rights that seem to be more and more valuable every year because live content is the most valuable content in media, especially sports content. You have somehow the NFL has become like the only professional sports league where every team is profitable. And that, that is largely, I think, a function of sort of perhaps supply and demand of, of labor. Um, and, and the commissioner is as much of a bumbling idiot as he sometimes seems to be, has struck really good collective bargaining agreements that allow the, the NFL football teams to continue to be really profitable. So you got recurring revenue, you got growth tailwinds, you got great unit economics. Like the only bad thing is it's capital intensive because you got to build $2 billion stadiums, but usually you can get the city to give you big tax breaks or cover a lot of that or something like that. So, and the last thing is it'd just be incredibly fun to own an NFL football team. That has to be one of the top 10 most fun jobs, I would imagine. Which team would you want to own? I mean, I'd love to own the Dallas Cowboys just so we could get rid of Jerry Jones. <laughs> but, but, but give me any one of them. I'll move to Green Bay, Wisconsin. It's a great team. Give me any one of them. Yeah, that would be a great one. Did you listen to the... There was a business breakdowns episode on the NFL that Patrick O'Shaughnessy did that was fantastic. It's pretty mind-blowing how profitable these teams can be even if they they don't sell any tickets and their stadiums are or their their teams don't play very well and they can like performance is like not a very strong correlator to profitability which is fascinating absolutely yeah one of the uh kyle to your point around kind of odd businesses with drug cartel being someone's example from you one of our guests talked about the mormon church being one of the best businesses they've ever seen because they, they there's a you know very strong tithing rule, and they help you with your finances so you can tithe more effectively, and they encourage you to have lots of kids. So much you know, there's a very large up and coming generation of Mormons also giving ten percent. So that's a pretty phenomenal business, but definitely a, a strong monopoly. It's a hard one to try to replicate. I'd say. I love that. I, Colin, I have a colleague, Chase Banks, who's our vice president. He's a Mormon. I'm not sure whether. He would love that answer or hate that answer. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to ask him and get back to us and then we'll we'll get to share that later. But thank you both for coming on the podcast. This was really, really fun. I'm excited to come to Dallas and have breakfast with you guys at some point and, and chat more. But thanks for it in the meantime for this conversation and hopefully others in the future. Great. Well, Alex, thanks for having us. This is a ton of fun. We love what we do and we love talking about what we do and, and appreciate the opportunity to do that today. And we'll see you on the field next week after we beat Alabama. <laughs> Absolutely. See you there. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood and & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. 